0: What's it like to host a cookbook podcast? What goes into a great interview? We could have asked ourselves, but we wanted to chat with someone who has been in the game a little bit longer. Welcome to Everything Cookbooks, the podcast for writers, readers, and cooks. I'm Kate Leahy, and today I'm here with Molly Stevens and Kristen Donnelly. Hey everyone. Hey Kate. Hi Kate. All three of us on the podcast. This is exciting. Today we're talking podcast. I mean, we started planning Everything Cookbooks in the fall of 2021 and we launched in the spring of 2022. Now, believe it or not, we're in our fourth season and looking back, it feels as though we've been doing this for a while, right?
1: It does. It feels, yeah. what, like five years?
2: So podcasts grow in dog years, is that? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. But we, I think it, because it's such a natural extension of the conversations that we were having already, you know, we've been talking about cookbooks for a long time. So, But yeah, the podcast, episode 65.
0: I think that's why it's
2: going to be so fun today to geek out a bit
0: about podcasts and cookbooks.
1: Podcasts and audio is such an interesting medium because... I feel like you get to know the hosts. Like with some of my favorite podcasts, I feel like I'm like really good friends with the hosts. And then I realize I've never met them in real life. (laughs) So there is this intimacy. So then when you have these like friends who are, you know, quote, friends, who are sharing an interview with somebody... I think that can mean a lot for an author
2: we've found just since we've been doing everything cookbooks that podcasting is, seems to be more and more a part of an author's book tour yeah we know there are less and less real tours and so there's more virtual tours but i think one of the things that's so sort of fascinating and exciting to me about the medium and i know that you know there's a lot of jokes about everybody and their dog has a podcast but you can get the word out but it can also be such a helpful way to learn about what other people are doing back to Kristen your point, the intimacy of it, is that people share their stories, like to learn how different books get made is so interesting or other people's journeys to become an author. Yeah, and it's true. It's like when I'm really excited about a
0: subject, I subscribe to like every podcast in that, you know, subject field. So it's kind of like in in some ways, I think it's the more the merrier, especially, you know, say we only release our podcasts once a week when we're in season. And and then what am I going to listen to the other, you know, six days of the week? So I'm pretty much if I like something, I will subscribe to all the podcasts in that category. Category, but maybe I'm a little crazy and I do walk my dog a lot. So, Well, but also
2: every host, host or hosts, depending on the, the format, they have their own point of view and their own characteristics. And so I think we find, like, I find I go in and out, you know, I'll be completely obsessed with a certain podcast because of their point of view. And then I might tire of that for a little bit and I'll switch to another one and then I'll come back to it. It's very interesting. It really is.
0: That's what's so great about today's interview is that we get to talk to somebody else who has a podcast, not only a podcast, but a cookbook related podcast. And we're going to geek out a little bit. We're going to talk about audio quality. We're going to talk about what makes a great interview. We'll talk about things authors can do to just be ready to have an outstanding interview. To do this, we're bringing on Brian Hogan Stewart. You might know him from his popular podcast, salt and spine which is all about the stories behind cookbooks he is in his 13th season of the show which launched in may 2018 and he also runs the salt and spine Substack, which features recipes from cookbooks he features on the show it's really done in a thoughtful way Um, this fall he has some great guests lined up and he's going to tell us who he has in store at the end of this episode with no further ado let's bring him on Brian Hogan Stewart, welcome to Everything Cookbooks.
3: Thank you so much. I'm I'm honored to be here and to chat with all of you.
0: We are really looking forward to this conversation because I think... You know, Salt and Spine has interviewed more than 200 cookbook authors at this point. Is that correct? Technically, that's correct.
3: Yes, we've we we we're, we've aired like 170 episodes or something, but we, we had a few that had, you know, more than one guest. So over 200 um, cookbook authors that we've featured on our show.
0: So when and why did you launch Salt and Spine? Take us back to your origin story.
3: So I thought coming out of high school that I would become a chef. I was sort of dead set on culinary school. I applied. I was accepted. I was like all ready to go. And at the last second, ended up getting a a journalism scholarship that covered the majority of my college um, tuition. So I had this real moment as a you know 18 year old of like, do I pursue culinary arts, which was kind of my passion at the time, Mm -hmm. or this other sort of passion, which was journalism, writing. And I I made the decision that like, Mostly free college was probably the better decision in the Smart. long run so yeah. I, I did that um, and spent like about a decade working in nonprofit communications working with advocacy groups, working with political organizations and enjoyed it and, but still had this like real pull to food to hospitality I was an avid home cook, a, a avid cookbook collector and it was really the 2016 election I was working in politics at the time and working you know 60 plus hour week just had like poured myself into that and the election happened and I just had this moment of reflection of like, I've poured myself into this work. And it's at times incredibly rewarding to work in politics and at times very defeating too. And there was just this piece of my brain that was like, you have to do something with this passion for food. Like you're, you're pouring yourself, you're exhausting yourself in this work, like give yourself some time to pursue this other passion. You know, I kind of thought for a while, I knew that I, probably wanted to do something on cookbooks. I'd I'd had this real interest in cookbooks, this um, growing collection, and just wasn't sure the format it would take. And I'm not really sure how I landed on a podcast. It kind of, I think I was kind of like in that moment, this is like 2016, 2017, where podcasts were really taking off. And like, it was everybody, you know, had launched a podcast for fun. So it was kind of like the thing to do. So it felt kind of right. But, you know, leaning on my journalism background, my work as a Journalist, my passion for home cooking and cookbooks, it felt like maybe this could kind of come together in some way. And so I spent like about a year putting together a plan, a pretty thorough launch plan, who sort of our first set of dream guests would be, what sort of topics we'd talk about, what segments there might be on the show, how we'd go beyond just the audio podcast to create more of a, an experience for home cooks. Um, and then we just kind of hit go uh, about a year after that. Wow.
2: I, I'm so curious, and I, we really want to get to that list of dream guests. <laughs> yeah. and, and also, you, you say we, and what, but I'm just going back to your love of cookbooks and your cookbook collection and how this notion of having a conversation with cookbook authors, because we're, especially this season of Everything Cookbooks, we're talking a lot about community. Mm-hmm. And I feel like cookbooks are so, that's just hardwired into what cookbooks are. The best of them are a conversation between the author and the reader or the cook in their own kitchen. So this notion that somehow in reading all these cookbooks, you get this idea that what if I could actually talk to these people in person?
3: Yeah, that's I mean, that's really what it was. For a while, I was like throwing around this tagline, like we bring cookbooks to life, um, which is sort of cheesy, right? But that's kind of what the vision was. And when I was working in politics those last few years and got sort of much more into cooking, because I needed an escape, I joined a bunch of online cookbook clubs, like I was food, the food 52 cookbook club where they were doing a monthly pick was mm-hmm. really, I don't know how active they are these days, but it was like really active in that era. And so I'd cook through a book with like all these folks online and like, it just really felt like there was this opportunity to create something that didn't exist. There weren't really many other cookbook podcasts at the time. There are more now like your wonderful podcast and a couple others that, that focus more on cookbooks. But at the time there weren't really many. So I was like, how could we have conversations with these authors and build some sort of sense of community? And my sort of journalist brain was like, these are just content tropes, right? Like people pour Mm -hmm. so much of their knowledge and their insight and their creativity into these books. And like, how can we harness that sort of to like showcase interesting things that didn't make it onto the page or why these decisions were made or how the books even come together um, in a lot of our conversations? So it really sort of was that idea of like building community through conversations with the author and in a way that you, you know, now we're competing against so many people. Um, we all, There were always platforms, right? Like Bon Appetit's YouTube channel existed, which was just viral already at the time. But there's so many places now you can hear conversations with cookbook authors. So we're always trying to think about how to keep it fresh. But it, it felt like there was an opportunity to create a, an intimate, in-depth conversation with authors in the podcasting space.
0: Yeah, that's really interesting what you're saying, too, because um, I'm thinking you're burned out from (laughs) all the the work you did on the 2016 and it's like this devastating sort of pivot moment where now it's time to find something a different thing you're passionate about, a different part of your brain. And then, you know, you could have decided, I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to write my own cookbook. But instead, Hmm. you looked at it from a different standpoint and we're thinking of more of this conversation. So that's kind of, I mean, did you ever think that's what I want to do? I want to go to culinary school now. This is my chance. I want to bring What other things could you have done?
3: Oh, yeah, there was definitely that culinary school thought, right? Like, just entirely pivot, right? Like, just quit my job, leave politics, go to culinary school. It sounded sort of really appealing at the time, to be honest, um, to just wash everything away and um, focus on cooking. But, you know, I didn't really think too much about writing my own cookbook. I sort of, you know, I'm not professionally trained, not that you have to be to write a cookbook by any means, but I sort of was more interested in tapping into the brains of all of these authors and looking to cook. Cookbook authors as experts in their own right. So that was really more of my thinking and less of like, what could I produce in terms of an actual cookbook? I wanted to produce other types of media
1: Podcasts in general, they're just such a great opportunity for authors because I feel like people who listen to podcasts also read or they, they buy books, right? So sure. whenever there's like a new podcast, I love to scroll back and find like, what was the first thing? And I didn't realize actually until I did this that with Salt and Spine, Nigella was the first guest.
3: She was our first episode. She wasn't the first, first episode. conversation okay. we recorded. So we recorded 10 episodes for the first season and she was maybe three or four. So she was up there, um, but she was the first episode we aired.
1: That's pretty sweet. And how did you just ask Nigella? Honestly, yes, it was.
3: (laughs) uh, People ask me this and I'm like, I guess I write really great cold emails. Like (laughs) it was all just cold emails. That's a skill. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. And, you know, I did spend a year like putting this plan together. So when I was reaching out to guests, we didn't have anything to show in terms of an audio product, but I had a lot to show in terms of the vision, the plan. We had a name we had a logo, like we were kind of ready to go. Yeah, we had 10 guests in the first season all from cold outreach. We had Nigella Lawson, we had Jacques Papen, we had Samine Nostrat, Diana Henry, just like I was kind of beside myself. I, re- I remember the moment like Jacques Papen's confirmation email came in my inbox. I was having lunch with my grandma, who um, was a big influence on me as a, as a cook, like I spent a lot of time at her house as a kid. We watched the older Food Network a lot, like The Two Fat Ladies was her favorite show. Um, so she I was having lunch with her and that like the email and I showed her and we were both kind of like I can't believe this is really happening. so pinch me it was, moment. It was very yeah. much a pinching moment. Yeah.
2: yeah Salt and spine is it's a great name and it I mean, it feels so established now because it is. Did you play with other names? I'm just curious so.
3: oh yeah, we had a whole list of other names um, yeah. probably at least 20 that were we were sort of seriously toying with. and Salt and spine came kind of at the last minute you know I can't even remember how it came about but it was mm-hmm. one of those like you're sitting on the BART train or something and you're just like oh it should be salt and spine um, and sometimes I do still have to explain to people like spine of a book right They're uh, occasionally we're like is this a medical thing <laughs> or oh, God. you know what, what does the that. spine mean <laughs> right
2: well it's funny because we we talk a lot about book spines um, and right. it, Paul Forbes out. recently Yes, yeah, spines <laughs> out uh-huh.
3: <laughs> <laughs> exactly but to you know so, uh, uh, someone who's less sort of in tune with cookbook yeah. publishing and they're, they're sometimes like what is the it's fine. Uh, But yeah, it just kind of came to me out of the blue and it felt great and it's punchy and it, it stuck. And I think I'm still pretty happy with the name. So
1: yeah. And you do keep saying we. I do. Yeah. So tell us about the we.
3: Yeah. So, well, sometimes I'm very guilty of using the colloquial we. <laughs> <And then laughs> I had a producer uh, when we started who went to journalism school with me, um, also was living in the Bay Area at the time with me. So and, you know, we were doing everything in person still then. And now we're sort of like hybrid and trying to move back as much as we can. But so for the first couple of years, she uh, her name is Allison Sullivan. She was our producer and really helped like build the vision for what Salt and Spine would be and get it off the ground. And then we've had a couple other producers since. Um, Madeline Forbes was with us for a while. Um, And then Clea Worster has been our producer for the last, I want to say like close to two years now, maybe a year and a half. And it's it's fun. She's, she'd moved to Germany recently. So she's, uh, was in the Bay Area and moved to Germany. So now we're international team uh, as well, which is super fun.
2: My understanding is that all the interviews were originally in studio, and I don't want to say live because they were recorded, but they were in person in studio and you use the word hybrid. So you seem to be moving away from that or mixing it up.
3: Yeah, we were fully in person for until the pandemic, essentially. So we would only take guests who we could record in studio here in San Francisco. And that was that was sort of core to the idea at the beginning. Right. I felt like there's an intimacy that you get with in person that you don't get sometimes virtually or it's harder to establish that virtually. And then obviously the pandemic happened and we had no choice, you know, authors Mm -hmm. weren't on tour, authors weren't traveling. And it also caused us to reflect a little bit at the time on perhaps that it was a bit exclusionary. You know, authors don't have a lot of funding. Often the publisher is not footing the cost of a book tour. um, So it may be self-funded if they are on tour. So there are are authors maybe who aren't able to invest in a book tour. And so we weren't even considering them because they weren't coming to San Francisco. So it was just a, a, a no. So we've been reflecting on that um, the past couple of years and then we, we went fully virtual during the pandemic. Initially, you know, we were like, everybody we we're like, well, this will last a couple of months. We'll be back in studio before you know it. <laughs> oh, yeah. And then we hit that moment where we're like, no, OK, if we want to keep producing content, we've got to go um, virtual for recording. And just before the pandemic, we had started an event series as well. So doing live shows with a, a live audience. Sometimes it's a dinner party with a podcast conversation and so those are back to. We've done, I think, five or six in the past nine months uh, this year. We did a beautiful one at Hog Island Oyster Company right on the shores of Tamales Bay, which is like wow. the most beautiful place I've ever recorded anything. <laughs> so It was <laughs> super fun. So now we're sort of continuing to keep some hybrid approach in in there, just knowing that like there are people we want to talk to that we just might not be able to get in person. So the preference is still in person, but it's, you know, it's just a different world post-pandemic, right. if we can use that phrase. So
0: I was uh, just thinking back to when you graciously had me on and my co-authors, John Lee and Ara Zeta to yeah. talk about Lavash in 2019. Molly, I probably either beat you or came after you when, in the Civic Kitchen. One of the things was that we gave you no notice. We're like, we're here, <laughs> interview us. You're like, oh, I haven't even seen the book yet. <laughs> so you're very gracious. But another thing um, that that struck me was just the expertise you had to have in all the technical setup. I mean, the the audio quality was amazing. I mean, just, you know, full disclosure for all our listeners, we have never recorded in person. We do it virtually. We, you know, have an ad hoc system that we've figured out to make it work. But um, I remember thinking, whoa, podcasting, this is really like, you got to have all this gear, you have to know what you're doing, the audio, and I was really impressed. How much time did it take to learn all that stuff?
3: Yeah, it was definitely a learning curve. And when, you know, when I landed on the podcast idea, I think I'd Thought about like a website. And, and then the podcast thing happened. I'm like, I have no experience in audio. Like I'd, I'd done some work in broadcast. I'd done some broadcast journalism. Um, I'd done some like online broadcast stuff, but I'd never done audio. So there was a bit of a learning curve, not to like make it sound easier than it is, because certainly like it's it's work to make sure the audio records well. And like, there's all the post-production stuff, but audio is very forgiving you know, we've played around with video a bit for Salt and Spine. And I'm also not a pro video editor, but like video is so much less forgiving. You can, you know, make edits and cuts in audio that nobody ever hears or notices. And you have to do a lot more work to to hide that sort of editing in video, right, with transitions or different camera angles or things. So that is one thing I learned pretty early on is that audio is forgiving. And we, you know, now it's just like the technology has advanced so much. I don't know if you all use Descript, to edit, but it's it's an audio editor that sort of also functions like a Word document in some ways, and it's a much more visual-based editing tool than some of the early audio tools we were using that, you know, only rely on waveforms, and you have to kind of spend a yeah. lot of time tinkering. So, like, I think partially because podcasts took off so much and audio has become so big, the technology has moved quickly to respond to that, so it's it's been really helpful, but... We do try to make professional-sounding quality audio, and it's a lot easier these days than it was.
0: How do you find the guests that you want on the show? Do people pitch you? Do you pitch them? Is it a combination of all of those things?
3: It's definitely a combination. You know, early on, we were just doing cold emails and trying to get people to become aware of us. I I think you all know, and probably many of your listeners know, the publishing industry is a pretty small industry in terms of the number of publicists. You know, there's a lot of consolidation that has happened. So it's at this point, you know, we're pretty connected to most of the major publishers and some of the smaller ones that produce cookbooks that we would be interested in. So um, now it's kind of more of just a two-way conversation each season in terms of which books are coming out and who we're interested in and who's going to be coming to the Bay Area for an in-person conversation. Who can we do events with um, is now a big piece of it for us. So it's a lot of that sort of they pitch us, we pitch them, we have a conversation, we figure out how it fits into our broader programming. Um, And we've tried to integrate some more thematic content. So, you know, when we started, everything we did was just one-on-one interviews with cookbook authors. You know, Nigella has a new book, so we want to go deep with her about that book, her career, her life story, all of that. The first time we sort of started producing thematic content was when everything happened at Bon Appetit and the test kitchen and the magazine. And we started to think about the ramifications for the broader food publishing industry, for the cookbook industry. I mean, these conversations were happening elsewhere too, right? And, you know, who was getting cookbook deals, who wasn't, there was a lot of conversation there. So we did a four-part series on equity in the, in the cookbook industry and the food media industry that, To date, uh, those are some of our most downloaded, most streamed episodes. Um, And, you know, those were now three, four years ago at this point. So
2: Mm -hmm. these were some of the episodes where I. Think, correct me if I'm wrong, Brian, but well, you would bring on there'd be multi-part episodes, so That's you right. might interview several different authors or different people involved in cookbooks.
3: Yeah, so instead of just one-on-one interviews, you know, each of those had a focus. You know, one was focused on what happened at Bon Appetit and sort of reflecting on that. Um, one was focused on representation in the cookbook industry. So we talked to a couple of agents, we talked to some publicists. One was focused on the next generation. So we talked to some like up-and-coming food authors like Rahan. Bissaret-Martinez, who we talked to several years ago, and her first book just came out this year, which is beautiful. So that was kind of the first time we tried that different format of not just a one-on-one interview with an author, but can we tackle a, a theme? Um, we just had a live show a few weeks ago here at the Mill Valley Public Library on the state of California cuisine today with um, Rima Seal and uh, Tanya Holland and Sarah Cavulsa Olson. So really interesting mix of perspectives on like what does it mean to be a, a chef in california how do those things translate to cookbooks that are being produced from california authors so we're we're continuing to try and play around with those different formats there're a lot more work when we talk about like I was audio and yeah, <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> those reported pieces and you know especially if you're doing five or six interviews with different people at different times and then have to weave them together it takes a lot more but we also saw you know from the metrics that people really responded to those and they performed Really well, and and people listen to them. So, we're thinking about how to integrate more types of content like that too.
2: It's interesting. Do any elements of the live events make their way into episodes?
3: Yeah, we put a mic in the in the audience. Um, yeah. So we want to capture, you know. Cheers, laughter. It's its a fun event for people who are in the room. But if you're listening at home, we want to make it feel like you're, you're there in the audience and part of the live show. Um, and then we typically take audience questions and either integrate those into the podcast episode or sometimes we put those as like a bonus piece of audio um, up on our Substack. So um, we try to bring that live atmosphere to the podcast waves as much as we can.
1: Tell us about Substack, actually, and how that supports what you do on the podcast.
3: Yeah, so for a while, we were using an a, um, audio hosting tool that inserted digital ads into the show as a way to try and produce some revenue from the show. And then I want to say about two years ago, we made the switch to Substack and no longer have ads in our shows and are just listener-supported now. From the beginning, we've always wanted to have content beyond just the audio Podcast, right? So we we've always had excerpted recipes from any of the books we feature, or other sort of bonus pieces of content, right? We often will record an excerpt with an author reading directly from the book. So it's not part of the interview episode, but you can go online and hear them reading a passage in their own voice, which can be really lovely. We just recorded with Viola Butoni, who actually read a recipe. It's the first time we've done that, but she had a sort of, yeah, like a narratively structured recipe. So she suggested that and I'm, I'm excited to share that. We put those things behind a paywall essentially. So, we always have had a seven day trial on the Substack um, that's been active for anybody forever. So, you can always test it out. You know, we have hundreds of recipes at this point from these featured cookbooks. So, we like to think of it as a, an added value for our community.
2: You love Everything Cookbooks, right? Well, we love making it for you. And if you'd like to help keep us going, go to everythingcookbooks.com slash support. There, you'll find links to our new merch, the coziest t-shirts and sweatshirts, and our bookstore where we earn commission from every book you buy. You can also leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to the show. Again, go to everythingcookbooks.com slash support to find all the ways to show us some love. And thanks for listening.
0: When do you fit it all in? Because this is not (laughs) a full time job. We know that you do a lot of other things, and this is still that sort of passion project that you keep going and keep iterating on. And I know I'm looking at the Salt and Spine Substack, and it's a very beautiful, impressive, thoughtful Substack, and it looks like there's a lot of time that goes into it too, and also crafting these episodes and thinking of themes. So tell me how you fit it in.
3: People ask me this, and I I never know a good answer because I I don't know myself. I'm like you know this is I have a day job. This is not my day job this is still my side hustle I have two little-ish kids now that did not exist when I started the podcast so that's been an, an adaptation um And, you know, it's hard to, you know, in-person recording takes time. Like there's prep, of course, for any sort of conversation, but physically getting to our our recording space at the Civic Kitchen and post-production, everything, I I just somehow squeeze it all in. We do sort of operate in seasons for a year or two in the middle there. We were just year round, like we were putting out a new episode basically every week, um, 52 weeks a year. And now we try to sort of chunk it into two or three major seasons. So we'll do a spring and a fall season for sure. And sometimes we'll do like a little summer season that's a little more lighthearted or or a little bit different format. So trying to think about how to sort of structure the editorial calendar in a way that is manageable and that we're not, you know, having to put things out the day after we record them and can sort of put things in the queue and stack it up. So it's hard to fit it in though. Yeah. But I appreciate that.
2: You mentioned prepping for episodes and what, what does that look like?
3: I mean, I always read the book from cover to cover, yeah. um, and you know, sometimes an author will be surprised. They're like, "You really read the book? You know, you you <laughs> you noted this like note on a recipe, or." But it's important to me to really sort of understand the the book that we're talking about. I don't read a lot of other coverage of the author. I try not to read a lot of other coverage or listen to other interviews that they may have done. I kind of try to. Avoid being influenced by what another podcast host has asked them or other topics of conversation. Sometimes I will. If it's a person who's had a lot of media coverage, sometimes it's helpful to know, like, am I just going to be asking all the same things Mm -hmm. that the past three interviews they've done have focused on? So sometimes I will. but. Really, it's spending a lot of time with the book, um, looking for interesting topics of conversation. We always start by talking about the author's career and sort of how they came to becoming a cookbook author or a chef. And then we always play a game. So we kind of have a structure to our interviews, too. So it's the game is hard. Tell
0: us about the game.
3: (laughs) (laughs) People do think the game is hard, you know, and I, I a couple authors have like Spun it around on me and been like, "What would you do?" And I'm like, "Oh, oh. gosh, this is hard. Oh. I'm so sorry. <laughs> I should have done <laughs> it's that."
0: It's fun though. I like the game. It's fun, but it's it it's is tricky. Fun. And
3: I I forget when we implemented that. It wasn't there at the beginning, but now we do it every episode. And we have this board game. It's called Competition Kitchen. I think it was a Kickstarter um. long time ago, and it basically is like a board game version of Chopped, right? They have like themes and different secret ingredients and things. And we just borrow graciously the ingredient cards from the deck and come up with a different game for each guest that sort of connects to their body of work or the cookbook or what we're talking about. And they can, you know, draw different ingredients and we ask them what they might make. And sometimes things... Come very easily to authors, and they sound very delicious. Sometimes people struggle, and they're like, "I would never eat that." And I'm like, that's okay. We don't have to, you know. It's just imaginary. Um, but it, it is fun, and I think people look forward to hearing how different authors sort of approach the the challenge of the game.
0: Right. Some of them are probably a little tricky. If it's like botarga and gummy bears, you know, exactly. and I, I don't know, uh, spelt, it's, <laughs> it might yes. be a little bit harder than <laughs> some of the other combinations. I don't know if that's yeah. a combination that exists in that deck
3: I think it's pretty close. Yeah, the gummy bear one is the one people <laughs> dread. Um, I mean, Claire Saffitz was like, I think she drew gummy bears, and she was cool as a cucumber about it. She's like, just melt them. Like, we'll, we'll do something else. <laughs> smart. Uh, yeah, but people get really scared by the gummy bear card. And there is a lot of luck, right? You might draw that combination that Kate you just shared, or you might draw like something that just totally naturally goes together and is like a classic dish already. So there's a little bit of luck in there, too.
0: What makes a good interview? I mean, are there certain t- people who just maybe naturally have a conversational tone. But are there certain sort of universal things that go into a good podcast interview?
3: Yeah, I think it's a combination of things. I think putting the guest at ease is really important. That's why I love in-person interviews. I think it's a lot easier to do that um, if you don't have a rapport with somebody already. I try to think of it as a conversation, but like very much a guided conversation. So, you know, I, I'm a journalist by training and I worked as a journalist. And still, when I started these interviews, like I I prepped way too much. And I the, the very first person we ever recorded with was James Sia, but um, the Oakland chef and his book Hawker Fair and I like you know, I hadn't done podcast recording. I'm like, this is a great interview. And I looked and we'd been talking for like an hour and 45 minutes. (laughs) I hadn't even realized I'm like, I'm so sorry. And he was lovely and gracious. And then I was like, okay, so paying attention to time is another important aspect of an interview. So there is sort of that tension as the interviewer of like, how do you have some of these deeper conversations? We want it to be a little bit more than just surface level without going too deep that like you run out of time, right? And how do you keep the conversation? flowing while keeping it conversational. So it's a bit of a skill and I think it takes a lot of practice, but I think putting people at ease certainly helps with that. Not being too wedded to like the prep work that I've done and trying to follow the conversation a little bit, which has been Something I've tried to get a lot better at over the course of these interviews, too, is I know there's certain things we want to talk about, but how do we sort of follow the flow naturally and try to weave those things in is really important. So those are sort of like the two things I would say, yeah.
2: You're able to listen to the answers that your guests, you know, provides. And if that changes the direction of the conversation, be able to go with it, but still come back to, you know, make sure you have your questions answered. Right. Well,
0: that's actually tricky. Yeah. And I think that's something that we've, you know, as we do these more, it becomes more natural. But you're always thinking, oh, I got to ask this next question. But then you can get so focused on that, that it's hard to remember to listen to mm-hmm. what the answer is before that. And it's hard to juggle. It's it's definitely a skill you have to practice that. And, and this is now, you know, going in from 2018. Now you seem like, when I hear your voice, it just sounds so calm, cool, and collected. like he's he's gonna, you know guide us through this interview, and there's not going to be any of those like it's
2: crashing, it's going off course. That just doesn't <laughs> happen. <laughs>
3: That's good to hear, yeah. <laughs> it does it, usually.
2: <laughs> I think we can all agree on the value of a good editor.
1: Yeah, I was going to say, I take such comfort yeah. in having an editor.
2: So let's talk a little bit about what happens in post. You meet with your guests, You maybe it ran long, you've got your questions, you tried to get the important ones answered, the guest is at ease, and then you have this recording, the raw recording. Then what happens?
3: You know, we, we've also sort of evolved in how we approach the post-editing from, you know, when we started to years ago to today. Today, we sort of treat things more as a light edit more than we used to. In the very early days, we did much more editing to Mm. the point that we would you know, we had this really interesting 10 minutes of conversation towards the end that actually was connected to something thematically earlier. So we can like move those things around. We were much more intentional and made a lot more editorial choices about how we wanted the full episode to sound. And now we sort of treat each interview as, as if it were somewhat live, I think partially to be, you know, Frank, that was for my time and sanity and our team sanity, right? Like we were spending so much time editing these episodes. I'm like, if we just go in and have a great interview, like we can clean up some of the audio that needs to be cleaned up and it cuts the production time in half, you know? So we still do, you know, we still do try to remove things that are sort of fluff or filler and not crucial, especially if something's running particularly long. But for the most part, we try to Treat the interview as if it were mostly live.
1: Descript really is a game changer too. Yeah, I, I actually don't know what Abby uses to tell the truth, but I, I I had my own podcast very briefly, and I spent the first nine episodes using the wave edit, and, and it was so hard. And then just and then I learned about Descript for the, my last few episodes, and I was like, well, this is a very different experience.
2: Right. So yeah, the light edit. I mean, we talk a lot about how audio is somewhat forgiving. I mean, we even talked about yeah. it earlier mm-hmm. in this conversation, and that you want. To convey the conversation. And and I think people who listen to a lot of podcasts, I know I do, consume a lot of audio. I expect a certain, you know, natural rhythm to a conversation. And sometimes sometimes conversations meander and they come back. And as long as it's, you know, the quality's decent and, and it's interesting...
3: Yeah, exactly, and every guest is different too, right? You know, and that's something I learned pretty early on too. You have guests who give very short answers, and <laughs> you're like, okay, we, and that, and part of that is not in the post, right? Part of that is in the actual interview process of of being able to elicit more and keep the conversation flowing, and then you have guests who are really long winded, so you have to be intentional, I think, about that in the moment, right? Of like, how do we sort of keep the conversation moving? Or like, how do we <laughs> cut it off a bit? That does save you a lot in the post too, if, if you can just do it in real time.
0: Right. Yeah, and I think what's also great just thinking about audio formats is that everybody can have their own angle. Like Salt and Spine has a very specific angle. You're going behind the scenes of well, who the person is who made the book, what mm-hmm. it was like to make the book, the inside sort of scoop into who they are um, and, and the project itself. And it seems to me that there's more interest in what really happens, how do cookbooks really get made? And I feel like our podcast, we're kind of, complimentary because we don't talk about the same things. Even if we had the same author on, I feel like we're going to go in different directions. You know, It's almost like a cookbook needs an angle. If anyone's thinking of creating their own podcast, you just need an angle. There's plenty of room, but you need to get your angle. So I think that's something that's kind of interesting too. I'm thinking, I bet there's people listening who are thinking about starting a food-related cookbook or whatnot-related podcast. I'm wondering if you had like words of wisdom for them, like things to think about before launching or whether it's right for them?
3: Yeah, I mean, I I think that's a great question. I think your point on having an angle is a a big one, right? Like understanding what the focus is. And that's why it took me a year to launch the podcast. You know, I could have just hit go, but I, I spent a lot of time thinking about what the focus would be and that it wouldn't be too open ended. And, you know, how do I I'm not a cookbook author. I'm not a professionally trained chef. So like what's my relationship to all of these guests? How does that translate to the episodes? So I think really just spending some time thinking about what's the focus, what's the angle, who are you and what do you bring to the table? For me, I I, I don't play dumb by any means. Like I'm a very informed home cook and I've spent a lot of time with cookbooks, but I don't try to position myself as an expert. I don't come to the conversation in that way. I I position myself more as a facilitator, a curious person who wants to learn from these authors. Somebody else who's, you know, listening and starting something might be like a preeminent expert on cookbook publishing and they can bring that to the table. Right. But just being aware of how I think as a host, you bring yourself to the space because to be frank, the hosts make so much of the show. And I've heard a lot of feedback from people who I think appreciate that I'm, I'm not a know-it-all host. Um, they mm. exist on not so much on food podcasts, maybe a little bit, but more so on other podcasts. I was I thinking to. politics
0: <laughs> podcasts might yeah. be pretty brutal <laughs> that way.
3: Exactly. <laughs> you know, they dominate the conversation. Or So I, I was very intentional about that. So I think thinking about what you as an individual or as the the host of a potential podcast bring to the table, is really important. Um, and podcasting is just it exploded. People still are really into podcasts. So there's a lot of competition and I think it's sort of it's cooled down a little bit in terms of like everybody wanting to start one or trying to start one. It's still very much a medium that, people are attentive to, that people consume. And so understanding like how, how you relate to what else is out there. For me, like when I was starting this, there were like two other cookbook podcasts. And I was like, there's, you know, out of half a million or however many existed at the time. I'm like, that's nothing. So knowing that niche, I think is really crucial too.
2: I'm so curious about that year. Well, that you spent a year planning this is blows my mind too, but um, I mean, I'm very impressed by that. But If you were to go back and look at that plan, how would it compare to what Salt and Spine is today?
3: Oh, that's a great question. I think it would hold up pretty well. I think partially that's why I was able to launch in the way that we did. And I kind of wanted to launch with a bang, right? I wanted Jacques and Nigella. And, you know, we record at the Civic Kitchen Cooking School in San Francisco, and they had just opened. And so I having that, it's like, you know, I'm happy to share it with you. It's like a 25 page proposal um, with, you know, logos and names and concepts of different segments and everything. You know, I walked in there too, with nothing to show. And I'm like, can I just like take a lot of your time Uh, you know they're (laughs) they need to make money right I'm like can I just steal your space for hours at a week to like record conversations with authors and they graciously said yes and then you know I think they were like beside themselves too and I'm like and I'm bringing Jacques Pepin tomorrow Um
1: (laughs) that's cool that's (laughs) amazing
2: so that was your idea to create a studio in the front of Civic Kitchen.
3: Yes. I knew I wanted to record these conversations in person. I didn't, you know, at the time I was like living in a little apartment that I didn't feel like I really wanted to invite people over to. Um, <laughs> I thought about all these options and they had just opened. They had an opening feature in Eater and I was looking at it. They have a beautiful cookbook library right in the front of the space. And there's a stunning picture of it in that Eater piece. And it just clicked. I was like, well, that's the perfect backdrop for a cookbook podcast. They've been amazing partners ever since. So, yeah, but it, it's really it's held up for the most part, you know, the vision we had 5 6 years ago is is pretty true to what we produce today still.
1: I love that mutual how it's like mutually beneficial too.
3: Yeah, and it's, you know, it's a great space because they, they're a cooking school for home cooks. So we've done a number of live shows there, um, because they have the infrastructure to do it. They have a full working kitchen. So we did a really fun live show with, um, Alison Arevalo from Homeroom restaurant here in the Bay area. And we did a pasta and a podcast. Uh, it was super fun, family style salads, pastas. And then we sat down and had a conversation while people ate in that space. So it's, it's a great relationship to have because we can do so much with the space. We host an annual cookie swap there with cookbook authors demoing some holiday cookies. One year we had over a thousand cookies that people had brought and were swapping and exchanging. And somebody brought dog biscuits and didn't label them. So oh, somebody no. like almost cracked a tooth. <laughs> uh, oh but God. it's a lot of fun. So
2: It's a lot of community too around it. And the live cooking segments, those also probably take a lot of work.
3: Yeah. You know, we've played with those at different points. When we started, uh, Allison Sullivan, our then producer, and I would cook from each book together in my home kitchen and produce an audio segment. Um, You know, we had like Alon shaya and I remember making his falafel, which I make to this day. It's an incredible Mm -hmm. recipe. And then we brought a kitchen correspondent on for a few years right before the pandemic. Sarah Varney is her name. She's now based on the East Coast and she works for NPR and PBS and like produces a lot of audio and video content. And for several years, she was sort of our kitchen correspondent and she would go out and cook with people out in the world from these cookbooks. So, it takes a lot of work. Um, so we're, we're trying to figure out what like version three of bringing that to life is. And I'm really interested in video if I can find time and energy and capacity <laughs> to tackle it. But yeah, how to like, you know, we have these in-depth, deep conversations with authors, how to then bring like the recipes and the food to life in a way too.
0: Absolutely. I know video is always that thing where you're right. Like you, you have to have the right camera angle, everything. It's just, it's so much harder than they make it look on TikTok.
2: Yeah. <laughs> if authors, Come on. And this, I think a lot of our listeners, If is there a way, if an author appears on a podcast, is there a way for them to get a bigger bump from that beyond just doing the interview, like to maximize the impact of that?
3: That's the hope. I mean, the hope is book sales, right, for any author. So, you know, we focus a lot on the book. We have featured recipes from the book that we always do with each episode to give people a sense of it. So, you know, we don't really have like hard numbers to show.
2: But is there something from an author's end that they could do to even help that?
3: Yeah. I mean, I think coming really prepared to an interview is helpful. Mm. I mean, obviously authors know their work and they know their book, but, but being ready for the types of conversations that we have just produces better content. So it's going to perform better. And we put a lot of our audio clips on social media too. So those, you know, the better those are, the better they'll perform, which just helps in terms of exposure for the author. That's partially why we've tried to figure out how to have live events, how to do mm-hmm. all these other sort of community building things is how do we make it more beneficial for the author in addition to this you know, nice interview that we put out into the world. We for about a year during the pandemic did virtual cookbook clubs. So every month we brought an author who had been on the show. Um, you could purchase a ticket to cook with them on Zoom. Um, and then we kind of hit the phase where people were like Zoomed out and <laughs> we are like, yeah. okay, let's take a break <laughs> from this. So we're trying to figure out what the next version of the cookbook club looks like too, right? But that was something too, where we were hearing from authors like they want to engage with our community, the salt and spine community more. Being a guest on the show is is great, but then, you know, you could come and actually, as a listener, be able to ask them questions on Zoom, cook along with a recipe that they chose. So, yeah, I think like in terms of what the author can do, coming prepared, being there and helping us produce great content and then just being open to creative ideas for how to leverage all of that.
2: Mm hmm.
0: I know we talked a little bit about how there's a lot of food podcasts, but which ones do you think we could use more of?
3: That's a good question. Um, There are a lot of food podcasts. I would like to see more food podcasts that focus on regional or international cuisines that don't get a lot of attention. I think there's a lot of podcasts that are extensions of food media, whether explicitly, right, like they're produced by a a major food magazine Mm -hmm. or they just kind of in format and style and content mirror a lot of what we see in food media. So, you know, I think Whetstone is a great example of a company um, who is producing really innovative food podcasts, right? They're going deep on some, on an ingredient or a production process or a style of cooking. Even like the Milk Streets of the world, I don't listen to a ton of Milk Streets podcasts, but like the video content they do, I would like to see some of that type of content where they go to some of these other countries and learn about their cuisine from cookbook authors who produced books related to that cuisine. And some of that I think translates to their audio work, but these these sort of deeper, and more niche dives, I don't see a lot of that. I also think like podcasting on the whole is just like and I say this as a white male, an industry that's like got a lot of white men in it. And so like having more people of color who are hosting podcasts, having more women who are hosting podcasts, having non white male voices, I think is really important. So I'm always happy to see when there's podcasts that are, you know, are centering those voices. And it's something we were really intentional about too. You know, I spent most of my career in progressive politics like i was very focused on ensuring we weren't just featuring white men from the beginning and we we check in on that very regularly so
0: those are really wise words to share. And I think anybody who um, wants to maybe explore what it would be like to you know, have a podcast can listen to this episode, listen to all your content. And also just think about, you know, we talk a lot about how to make a cookbook proposal. And I'm thinking I learned a lot about how to make a podcast proposal, even if it's just for yourself, create right. your business plan, you know, do all the brainstorming and, you know, play around. Audio is forgiving. It just uh, might take a little time to to find your footing. This was a, such a fun conversation, Brian. I wish we were all in person at Civic Kitchen so we could share a bite all together as a group. But it was a delight to, to pick your brain and hear more about how, um, how you got into food and how you created and keep creating Salt and Spina. Just before we leave, um, tell us a little bit about the episodes you have going on this fall.
3: Yeah, well, thank you so much for inviting me. This is—it uh, was such an honor to get get your email to join you on the show. And I remember when you all launched the podcast, and I was so excited because I'm like, this is a great concept. And and I had that thought that we're not competitors because when I saw what you were doing, right? I'm like, we complement each other so nicely. Um, our fall season's really exciting. We have um, Dan Pelosi, Grossy Pelosi coming up. We um, have Deb Perlman for the first time. Smitten Kitchen, her more recent book that came out spring, I want to say. Um, she's in our fall season. We just aired a great episode with Frankie Gaw, who wrote First Generation, which is a really stunning book. Hetty McKinnon, we've had on the show before, but she's back um, for the first time in person, which was a real joy. James Park and his Chili Crisp book was a lot of fun to talk with him, an entire book about Chili Crisp. So, uh, And a couple of fun live shows. I think I've mentioned a couple of them already, but you know, we did this Mill Valley live show uh, um, with the Mill Valley Public Library on the state of California cooking. We did this really cool show at Hog Island Oyster Company. So some fun live shows that people can tune in for as well.
0: That little virtual um, audio vacation to you know, <laughs> right. beautiful Tamales Bay or Mill Valley.
3: <laughs> exactly. And we always do a baking week as well. So stay tuned in November for some interviews with some of the more interesting baking authors this fall.
0: We will. Thanks again so much, Brian. And we'll have all the things we talked about in the show notes for anyone to check it out. Um, this has been a lot of fun. Thanks, Brian. Thank you all. Thank you for listening to Everything Cookbooks. For more episodes and ways to contact us, go to our website, everythingcookbooks.com. You can find more episodes on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your audio. If you like what you hear, please leave us a review. It really helps. Any book mentioned in the show can be found on our affiliate page at bookshop.org. Thanks, as always, to our editor, Abby Cirquitella, And until next time, keep on writing, reading, and cooking.